0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast and refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information prior to listening to this podcast.
1: Welcome to this podcast on the Market Outlook for 2021. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia for Bank Julius Baer, and we're focusing on Asia in this podcast, so I should really say Market Outlook with an Asian twist. And I'm joined today by our Head of Hong Kong Fixed Income Specialist, Marian Mack. Hello, Marian. Hey, Mark. Well, let me set the stage for this year by doing a quick recap of last year and what a horrible year it was. I'm sure you both agree. Certainly, it's the most horrible that I've lived through in my brief time on this planet. You know, Mary and I went back and looked at my notes from exactly this time last year. Guess what the big thing was that we were preoccupied with back then?
2: Um, I don't know, Mark. I'm guessing the U.S. election?
1: Well, you're right. I mean, there was a lot of talk about the U.S. election back then already, Bernie Sanders and stuff. And, and yeah, the market went up 30% in 2019. But I look back on my notes and precisely a year ago, the number one thing on everybody's mind was the assassination by the United States of a senior Iranian general. And by the way, we shouldn't forget that. The Iranians clearly haven't forgotten it. But um, there was another little story I noticed in my notes that 59 people in Wuhan had been infected by a mysterious viral pneumonia. And we were told back then it wasn't caused by human-to-human transmission. And that's all we knew. That's why it was a tiny story Well, who would have known in the space of a year that 1.8 million people would die of that same virus, the first global pandemic since 1918. But somehow, if someone back then did know what was going to happen. Do you think they would have believed that the S&P would rise 17% in that same period of time, or that the NASDAQ 100 would rise 48%, or that the mainland Chinese stock market would rise 36%? I guess that's what keeps me interested in markets, apart from the fact they're, they're good to invest in, obviously. What I like about them is they're fascinating. They're so hard to predict. But that's our job, isn't it, Marion? Can you tell us, uh, what do you think about bonds?
2: Well, Mark, you mentioned low interest rates and quantitative easing. And those two factors have put huge pressure on bond use. Just two years ago, over half of all the bonds in the world were giving you a yield of 3% or more. And today, just 15% of all the bonds in the world give you a yield of over 3%. Wow. That's why our investment management team that manages funds on, our be- on behalf of our clients they have a 40% weighting for bonds in their balance portfolios, and that is compared to 50% in equities. And I should point out that the remaining 10% is in cash and alternative investments, just in case anyone was wondering. Of course. But anyway, within that 40% allocation for bonds, the ones we like are obviously the ones we think have the best mix in terms of risk and reward. And this year we continue to favor moderate credit risk which means bonds in the low triple B and double B space that is bonds that are rated triple B or double B by the big credit rating agencies such as S&P and Moody's and also what we mean by low investment grade are those bonds that are still investment grade bonds so these issuers have good credit profile but they're at the lower end of the investment grade range So they have a better yield. Aside from that, we also like European periphery government bonds. That's because we think when the ECB buys government bonds, the significance or the weight, if you will, of that buying is greater on the smaller countries than the bigger ones. Then last but not least, we like emerging market hard currency bonds and also Chinese government bonds.
1: Well, thanks, Marion, and that does bring us nicely to Asia, and that's where we want to be in terms of today's podcast. So let me briefly say what we think about Asian bonds outside of China, then I'm going to hand it back to you for the China part, Marion. You mentioned how big developed world central banks have been pumping a lot of liquidity into the markets through these bond purchases, and that's pushed down the bond yields. Emerging market central banks didn't have the same luxury, but the bond market's like a food chain. If you can imagine the food chain in the animal world, organisms eat each other, that's how nature survives. And so when bond yields go down in the developed world, eventually that spills into emerging markets. Bonds too, and and that's what's happened. You know, this time last year, Marian, Asian dollar-denominated uh, investment-grade credit indices were yielding 2.6 percent, and that yield blew all the way out to 3.9 percent in March. You know, when the coronavirus became a global pandemic. Anyway, now it's back to 2.9, and on the high yield side. Uh, this time last year, it was 7.2% and uh, blew out to 11 It's at 63 today. That's even lower than where we were a year ago.
2: So I see the dominant theme in emerging Asia is the same as it is in the developed world. Right, Mark?
1: It absolutely is. Central banks are are keeping rates low, buying up bonds because they're still worried about their economies, and and yields around the world are getting pushed down even more, and and that keeps the credit spreads low, and it supports the riskier bonds, Marion, as you well know, because people have to go out further along the risk curve than they did before. So anyway, I wanted to talk about Asia outside of China. Uh, The two big bond markets are Indonesia and India, and basically, we like Indonesia, we don't like India. I'm not saying the countries, of course. I mean, their bond markets. And the Indonesian government, what's interesting there is they recently signed a law making it much easier for foreign investors to hire employees, also to fire employees. And that was a big problem for Indonesia before. It has a lot of potential. You know, there's 270 million people there. It's growing at 5% per year. But it's one of the countries in the world where it was most difficult to fire people. So a lot of businesses bypassed it. That was great for Vietnam, by the way. Anyway, that's changed. Their currency is doing well. The oil price, around $50 a barrel, good for them uh, because a lot of the economy relies on commodities. Um, Commodity prices go up. Their consumption goes up. China's buying coal and lots of other raw materials from Indonesia. So we like it. Um, Then there's India. Basically, we think its bonds are trading at levels that are already discounting a full recovery, and I just want to compare it for you guys. Let me take a company in India and contrast it to the same company in Indonesia in terms of operating in the same industry, dollar bond. Let's call it about a four-year maturity just to make it like for like. Now, in India, you're getting about a 3 to 4% yield. In Indonesia, you're getting a five to 6% yield. And on top of that, there's still a question mark over whether the rating agencies might downgrade India from investment grade to high yield. They've threatened to do it. Uh, We actually think they probably won't because they're waiting to see if the economic data improves and we think it probably will. But still, when you can get five or 6%, why go for three or 4%? And rising oil prices are generally not good for India. And we're looking for $55 a barrel for oil 12 months from now. But uh, Marion, you know, I feel like I've gotten a sidetrack because the Asian bond market story is mostly about China. It is the bond market in Asia we really like. So please tell us about that.
2: Well, Mark, one thing our chief investment officer, Yves Bonzon, did last year that I think is worth pointing out is that he bought Chinese renminbi-denominated government bonds for our core discretionary portfolios we think the dollar will be on the weaker side this year Indeed, because the Fed can keep writing a bigger check than anyone else. But China did no quantitative easing last year, and it won't be this year either. Chinese 10-year bond yield is at 3.1%, and comparing that to the U.S. 10-year treasury yield at roughly 1.1% now, and most other developed countries' bond yields are negative.
1: That's a big difference.
2: Yeah. Now, the Chinese government, I'm sure, has noticed the moderation in export orders in the most recent purchasing manager indices and the rise in inventories. The numbers are still fine, and, but they're not as strong as they were before. So I doubt they'll let the renminbi trade much below 6.3. But that's okay. We still like Chinese government debt.
1: Well, thanks, Marion. How about on the credit side?
2: Well, we like it too, and specifically for Chinese uh, property bonds. In the last few months, we have seen more policy tightening measures to control the overall debt level in the sector. So, for example, we have the three red line rules, which basically restricts developers on how much they can increase their debt depending on their credit profile. And also, recently, there are new rules capping banks' exposure on property loans. We see these measures more as fine-tuning because the government continues to prevent overheating in the sector. There is a lot of money going into China now. And if they don't regulate, I'm sure a lot of it will go into the property market. Absolutely. But they certainly don't want to crash the property market either. It's far too important for the economy. In fact, it's roughly a quarter of the GDP. And if you count the related sectors, such as real estate agents, furniture, white goods, then you probably end up with a number closer to 30% of GDP. So with these new policies in place, a number of developers, and especially the highly leveraged ones, will be forced to deleverage. And this should imply improved credit metrics in the sector in the medium term. And we should also expect more consolidation in the sector. In fact, we think the government tightening is actually a good thing for the bigger property names, which are the ones we like anyways. And in addition to the China property bonds, we also find the China SOE, High Step-Up Perpetuals, offering interesting relative value here. These are basically bonds issued by the big China SOEs with a big coupon step-up on the call date. This means we think it is very likely for them to early redeem these instruments on the first call date, therefore limiting extension risk for these instruments. We think the yield pickup for these instruments is pretty attractive relative to the structure risk. And finally, as Mark touched on earlier, I just want to reiterate within the EM hard currency bucket, Indonesia corporate bonds and U.S. dollars is another area we like as a macro recovery play.
1: Okay. Well, thanks, Mary. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to us. To summarize, we're still constructive on markets this year. And uh, even though there's going to be an economic recovery, the central banks are going to stay loose and easy with their policies. Then what else did we talk about? We talked about how a softer dollar should be good for risk assets in general. Our preference is stocks over bonds. And here in Asia, we like Renminbi-denominated Chinese government bonds, as Marion said, and uh, dollar-denominated property developer bonds. And we like Indonesia. We look forward to speaking with you again soon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, and goodbye.
0: You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Bear. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Bear, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research.